Good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are at. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. And if you brought a Bible with you, open it up there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And we'd love for you to open those up. And if you do not have a Bible or you know someone that needs one, go ahead and take one of those as our gift to them. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. Now, in a healthy church, a healthy local church, in this healthy local church, there's a concept that's written into our church covenant. And if you have become a member of our church, you have signed that church covenant And you know what it says, hopefully. It says this statement, one of a few different statements, but this one is right up there on top. I will protect the unity of my church by acting in love towards others. I will protect the unity of my church by acting in love towards others. You see, one of the things around here, any Bible-believing church should be like this. We are committed to seeing people get to heaven. We're committed to care about what's going on in each other's lives. We are, all of us, living in a world that's consistently, continually assaulted by really what I call the ancient triple enemy of every Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We are just bombarded by that. We're at war. All of us are at war continually with the flesh and the world and the devil. We are in danger continually, and we will be wounded at times by the flaming arrows of the evil one, right? There's going to be those times where we walk out going, oh man, this is tough. But then you remember your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it awesome to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ love us, care about us, are committed in a covenant with us to watch over our souls in brotherly love, not just the elders of our church, not just the pastoral staff, but everyone. And, and here is the beauty of the Christian reality, everyone. Here's the beauty of it. Christ has set us free from sin. Amen? Christ has set us free. And really the big question that Paul's asking here, and one of the reasons I decided to take chapter 8 and not go through all 13 verses in one week, because really you could, I wanted us to pull on the brakes and slow down and really understand what does Paul want us to get here. And what he wants us to get is that Christ has set us free. What are you going to do with that freedom? 
Christ has set us free. What are you going to do with that freedom from sin? And that's what's in front of us here. And the principle that we've seen already last week, we're going to continue to study this, is that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is going to limit our liberty. You see, your liberties, your freedom, are limited by your love horizontally for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's read verses 7 through 13. Go ahead. I'll read it out loud. You, you look at this and, and circle maybe some key words in there you may find. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We neither lack if we do not eat, nor abound if we do eat. But see to it that this authority of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And in that way, by sinning against the brothers and wounded, wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Those are amazingly powerful words of the commitment of the Apostle Paul to make sure he does not have someone stumble because of what he's doing. And so you have this doctrine of freedom of the strong, really. And we're going to look at it once again, like I said, a second time here this weak and strong topic, we have this kind of language in this chapter. We don't have the strong named, but it's assumed if there are weak, then there must be strong, or the category doesn't really mean anything. And five times, if you look in this text, he talks about weak or weakness in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. Five times he mentions this idea of weakness, so there must be some sort of measurement somewhere for those being strong. Now, once again, let's take a step back and look at the Corinthian context. The context is paganism, polytheism, the idea of gods and, and god, goddesses that could be counted uh, in hundreds, if not thousands. Each of them had different roles and responsibilities in there being a god and a goddess. And each of them would be worshipped in the temple or a shrine with uh, animal sacrifices involved. And the meat would be divided. Some of it would be burned up to the god or goddess. Some of it would be eaten by the priest and he would use 
most of it, but he'd also sell part of it in the marketplace, already having been offered to the god or goddess. But some of the meat would be brought home and would be offered to the god or goddess earlier. Now, Paul came then in the midst of this culture. Paul came and brought the gospel into this paganism, into this polytheism, into this darkness. And it distressed Paul. You can imagine Paul walking into Corinth. Paul walks into Corinth and Acts 17, 16 tells us exactly how Paul felt. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Distressed. And so he began to reason in the marketplace and in the synagogues. He began to preach the gospel. And in due time, he was invited to, to come to Mars Hill and to proclaim the truth and that's laid out for us even here in 1 Corinthians 8. The truth that there is one and only one God. And in verses 4 through 6, he recites that doctrine. And we unfolded that last week. I'm not going to go through that again. But that's what the strong accepted. They believed that there was one God and only one God who made heaven and earth and every human being on the face of the planet and he made them for a relationship with what? Him. And that the idols are nothing. There is one Lord Jesus Christ and God sent his son Jesus Christ into this world as the savior of the world. That's the doctrine and that's how the strong know what's going on and know what this is. And then concerning meat, meat's just meat. That's all it'll ever be. The meat cannot catch some sort of spiritual virus. There's no spirituality to the meat. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul says in Romans 14, 14, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in and of itself. Which matches what verse 8 says in our text. Food, food does not bring you any closer to God. And that's what the strong know. Yes, they're free, and they're set free by this doctrine that there is one God and one God alone, and Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And that's it. But the problem, and we saw this a little bit last week again, is that that knowledge was making them arrogant, was making them boastful and prideful. And they were kind of being captivated by how much they knew. And Paul's really like, hey, you know what, everyone? You haven't been humbled by God the way you need to be. Because your knowledge is supposed to flow out horizontally and bless people. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we, are, we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Remember that? And then he says, here's the danger. Here's the danger, everyone. Not everyone understands this. Verse 7 again. Some people are still so accustomed to idols 
that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And you get this picture of the profile of a Corinthian convert. This convert had walked out of being indoctrinated into the dark side. The dark side of temple worship, temple prostitution, his his conscience was violated, sacrificing meat to idols, all woven together in his heart, and it was dark and it's yucky, and his mind was in the gutter with how he lived until one day that person heard the gospel. That person, that person in Corinth, heard the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel of a God who's pure, a God who is holy, a God who's above the earth. He's light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And he's not served by dark things, and, and we've violated his laws. We've sinned against him. We can't save ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot free our guilty consciences. God knew that. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, who died a substitutionary atonement death for us. He died in our place so that the high and holy God would be reconciled to me, to you, through him, Jesus Christ. That Corinthian heard that good news. And finally, there was hope. Can you imagine that? I have been doing all of this yucky stuff. I've been filling my life with all of these terrible things, trying to make it feel right. But Jesus, he's my hope. And in his heart, he believes, she believes, accepts Christ as Savior and is set free, cleansed, cleansed from darkness and corruption, becomes a new creation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. Could you imagine living in Corinth and living the life that you used to live in Corinth with all of the junk that went on in those temples and all of the things you participated in and you walk out and you go and you breathe. It's kind of like breathing that fresh air after the rain. All the impurities are gone, the pollution, the junk is gone, the pollen is gone. You go, I'm free. I am free, clean. And you can imagine this person walking by the temple grounds from time to time to get to the marketplace, maybe to visit a family member, and he would thank God for delivering them out of that cesspool. Have you ever felt like that? Thank you, Jesus, for delivering me from that junk. And you can imagine that person probably walked a little faster past the temple. 
Like, I, I, I got to get around that. But in the course of time, a member of his church took him to the meat market and brought, bought him some meat from the vendor and maybe sat down there right at the, by the temple grounds and ate it and having lunch. And we talked about this last week. And you can imagine this person going, what are we doing here? I thought I was never going to go back. I thought I was never going to go back. And while he's sitting there, a temple prostitute walks by that he knew, if you get what I mean. And maybe that temple prostitute gives him a little smile. And you can imagine the heart wound that he's feeling, that she's feeling. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to revisit this. I don't want to be a part of this. This is what I left. Well, what happens next? Well, I don't know. But it could be that that person would be susceptible more than you could ever know about going back. Turning their back on their new faith in Christ, going back into the old life that he was just recently rescued from. That's the danger for the weaker brother. You guys get it? This is a real deal. So as one side note here, never, ever violate your conscience. It's a simple lesson, transferable concept from right here. Paul says it very plainly in Acts 24, verse 16, because there is a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So that voice inside accusing you of walking away from what you know to be true now, and you do it anyway, what are you doing? You're sinning. Paul says it very plainly in Romans 14. The person who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating is not from faith, and whatever does not come from faith is sin. And you can apply 1 Corinthians 8, whatever area of freedom, if you can't do what you're doing with a clear conscience as an act of worship to God, don't do it. Because the concept here, once again, everyone, is the danger of destroying the weaker brother. Extreme language is actually being used here by Paul. Did you, did you catch that? Their conscience is weak. It's being defiled. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, speaking to those stronger ones, the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verses 10 and 11, for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, 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 you have this knowledge, eating an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what it's been sacrificed to idols, right? This weaker brother from Christ died is ruined. Is ruined by your knowledge. 
Those are strong words, defiled, stumbling block, ruined. Other versions aptly put it, destroyed. Now, don't imagine this means that this person is automatically sent to hell. He's lost his salvation. That's not what we're going at here. What we need to be thinking about, about being destroyed is this. His sense of peace is what? Destroyed. His clear conscience about how he's living his life for the Lord is destroyed. His daily walk with Christ is destroyed. His fruitfulness in Christ is destroyed. His lifestyle that he's trying to live for Christ is destroyed. He is confused. He is destroyed by your knowledge. That's what Paul is saying. And he uses that language of the wounded in verse 12. You wound their weak conscience, causing them to fall into sin. And Paul is simply saying here, everyone, I will not do that to my brother, to my sister. Because the central lesson here is that if I truly love my fellow believer, my love limits liberty. That's what verses 9 through 13 are talking about. You can, in verse 12, you know, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You know what, I was when I was reading that this week, I was picturing how Paul reacted when he heard Jesus speaking to him when he was still Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in this case, it's speaking to the church. He's speaking to us, everyone. Scott, Scott. Why are you wounding my people? You realize how powerful this statement is? Why are you wounding my people by flaunting some freedom that doesn't matter? Is your freedom, your right to do whatever you want in that area, is it worth your brother or sister? Is it worth it? And that's the question that you have to ask. How much is that meat worth to you? How much, fill in the blank of whatever's going on, is that worth to you? You know, Paul says in Romans 14, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. better not to eat milk or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. Do you catch that? It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that will cause your brother to fall. This is powerful stuff. This is why I wanted to slow down and deal with this for two weeks. Because in our culture, 
our culture today is screaming, who gives a rip about what you think, about what hurts you? And the gospel calls us to be all about caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul makes it very clear. If I'm supposed to, I mean, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Well, then I need to start looking at my life and go, what liberties am I flaunting that are possibly destroying? I mean, that's the word there, right? Ruined, destroying. What liberties am I flaunting that is potentially destroying a brother or sister in Christ. And so this is how I kind of flip the question in my application for myself. What am I willing to do to pour my life into building up my brothers and sisters in Christ? Right? So here, you know, beyond 1 Corinthians 8, this is the spirit of it. Are, are you willing to make sacrifices to help with the discipleship of other brothers and sisters? I, I think this is a prime area to apply 1 Corinthians 8. Some people realizing their problems that they've come out of, their background they've come out of, They've come out of a lifestyle that you know and they've told you, I can never go back to that, whatever that lifestyle was that was against the Lord. And we as brothers and sisters need to respect that, be aware of that effect on their freedom in Christ and say, my freedom in Christ means nothing compared to keeping them on the right road with Christ. And, and here's where, you know, the rubber's already hit the road in this message. But if, if I'm not willing to make sacrifices, is it really love? If, I, if I'm not willing to make a sacrifice in marriage, is it really love? If I'm not willing to make a sacrifice for my fellow brother and sister in Christ? Am I really protecting the unity of the church? And then you think, what kind of similar sacrifices would I make for evangelism? For reaching those that do not know Christ yet? We're called to Look different, everyone, aren't we? Too many times I think we as Christians in this culture try to dabble in looking like the culture as much as possible. Yet the culture is what is killing people. Paul walks into Corinth and says something completely foreign to them. He's all these gods here. You even have this 
idol to a God you don't even know who he is. I know who he is. He's God. He's the only God. He's the only true God. Let me talk to you about him. And there were people that said, Fooey. And there were people that wanted to listen because it was something different. And it's truth. And obviously, people came to know the Lord. What kind of sacrifices are you willing to make to share the truth of Christ with our world? And so as I close right now today, all I can really do, everyone, is appeal to you to live for your brothers and sisters in Christ. To, to know their story. You've got to know their story, right? You've got to know where they come from. You've got to ask questions like, so how did you meet the Lord? What was life beforehand? And when you know what that was beforehand, then guess what? You can avoid the stumbling blocks of the life before with them. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. And for those of you who are outside of Christ, maybe in this room today, and you're looking in, you're not yet Christians. We offer the same thing that Paul offered. We offer Jesus. We offer the good news that there's one God who sent his son Jesus to die for you. And when you say yes to him and believe in him, that sin is removed Jesus paid the price for that sin, and you are a new creation. And we as a church are called to come alongside every single believer and walk together in the Lord. I do believe that if you are not in Christ here today, I believe it's refreshing to hear there's a group of people that want to help you live a different life that will walk with you. I believe God drew people here today to hear that he sent his son to die for yucky, guilty sinners because every single one of us who have accepted Christ in this room came to a realization that we were yucky, guilty sinners. And you know the sins you've committed. And you've wondered... Is there any forgiveness? Is there any acceptance for me? And the answer is yes. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. Walk with Him. And yes, it's different than this world says is okay. Yes, there are things that we are called to live in a different way than the world because we're called to live a righteous, holy life. We're called to live a life that the Lord has called us to live. But man, I'll, I'll walk in that any day because of what Christ did for me. 
and the church that he's put around me and that I get to be with forever with him. Come to Christ, trust in him, know your brothers and sisters, know that we need to keep building them up in the Lord. Amen?